If you have your Bibles, you can open it to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be finishing 1 Peter this morning, and it has been a joy to preach through this and walk through this alongside you guys. I, I hope you have gotten as much out of the letter of 1 Peter as I have. I know I've um, definitely been challenged and encouraged by it, and I hope you've seen just the um, practicality it has in speaking to us um, in, in modern day and how alive the Word is through Um, God's Spirit. And so as we walk through this, we've talked a lot about the setting and what's going on in 1 Peter, the idea that Peter is talking to a people that find themselves in a similar situation to us, a people who are becoming more and more outcast in a land they thought was home, that for whatever reason, they're becoming political and social, financial outcast in the places they thought they belonged. And so they're having to reconcile their heavenly heavenly citizenship with their earthly citizenship. And they're having to figure out what does it mean to live in covenant with God. Because Peter grounds everything in this idea that the believer is in covenant with God, drawing from the Old Testament and from the New Testament alike. And so walking through this, um, the first thing, as Peter talked about in chapter 1, that the covenant with God is built on what Christ has accomplished. That our ability to be in covenant to God, to enter into relationship with God, is built on what Christ has accomplished. And because of that, because we are in covenant, God has called us to be holy. And we talked about what that means to be holy and all that means for us and how do we do that. And we talked about in chapter 2 and 3 how Peter expects our holiness to express itself in how we live around unbelievers. And ultimately, how we live around unbelievers, we talked about this last week, is going to lead to suffering because unbelievers will not understand us. And so this week, Peter is going to conclude And he's going to conclude with talking about the flock of God, the church. And he's going to talk about how, ultimately, that we as Christians in covenant with God are not isolated. We are part of a community, a covenantal community. And this has implications for what we do and how we interact. And so with that, Peter's going to lay out for us some guidelines and some thoughts to challenge what we think about church and what we think about how we live amongst ourselves when the culture is very different from us. And so with that said, let's look at God's word. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 5. This is what's written. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. So right here, starting in verse 1, we kind of the first principle for how Peter expects the flock of God to interact. And that's he expects them to interact correctly. That the flock of God should and must interact correctly. We see this in other places in Scripture, but how the church behaves towards itself and towards other believers demonstrates a lot to the world about what we believe. And so Peter's going to start with that. And to to show you this, let's first look at the first word of verse 1. The word is so. Now, compared to the Greek word here, the so doesn't carry um, as much of the weight of us. The idea being the transition is that just like we saw in chapter 3 and 4, this suffering that the Christians were facing, the idea that Peter starts off with is that the leaders of the church are going to suffer. 
And the pastors, the elders of the church, are going to suffer in a way that's beyond even what the regular believers were suffering. And so Peter starts that the first correct interaction is that the leaders of the church must lead well. They must be out in the front of the church suffering for good, as the rest of the church is doing. They must set an example in conduct and behavior and speech, and the leaders must lead well. And so what does Peter think it means for the leaders to lead well? Well, the first thing he says is that they must be among the sheep. That's what he says in verse 2, right? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, right? The idea being that these, these pastors, these elders, lived among the people, They were in community with the people, and they were around the people of God. The people would know them, and they would know the people. That this community, wherever they were, the elders, the pastors serving on them, were known to the congregations. And what's really interesting about this, compared to maybe um, 1 Timothy or or other epistles, is, is we understand that the churches that Peter's writing to aren't super established churches. These aren't churches that have been churches for 100 years. Um, We've been a church longer than these churches had been established. And so in some ways, they didn't have formalized meeting spaces. They didn't have formalized structures. They didn't have formalized um, place, you know, procedures and policies and bylaws and constitutions and all that. But what we see is Peter knew that the people had people in authority over, had elders in leadership over them, and the leaders were acting in such a way, having authority over them. There was, even informally, there was a structure of authority in the local church. Right? Even informally, in, in the very basics of churches, we see that Peter understood and expected there to be some hierarchy in the church. But, this is, but he makes clear this doesn't give license for inappropriate behavior. And so he lays out what proper leadership in the church looks like. He says, first, it is done willingly. Leadership in the church should be done willingly. He says, not under compulsion, right? But willingly, as God would have them. Right, as God would have elders leading, they are to do willingly. And they should be eager to serve. They should not be people that are, that are distanced from serving the church, dif- distanced from serving the needs of the community, but they're people that are eager to serve among the believers. And then ultimately, he says, as role models, as people whose behavior the church should look to and emulate. You see, what he's saying is, is is you put all these together and you get somebody that is demonstrating the very lifestyle Peter is commanding the believers to live, right? He's not saying that the elders should be perfect, that they're they're perfect leaders, but he is saying they should live in such a way that what they preach is their life and that a believer, all they have to do is look at how they're living and they become more like God. That the holiness that, that Peter expects the believers to exhibit is found first and foremost in the leaders of the church, And if you think about this, I I think there's a natural thing that Peter is kind of highlighting here, is that when things get difficult, people look to leaders, right? When situations get difficult, things get tense, maybe you're becoming a political social outcast, you look for somebody to cling on to. You look for somebody to attach yourself to, right? Somebody you can say, well, that person's looking out for me. Nobody else is, but that person's got my back. And here's why godly leaders in that moment are really important, Because if they're not godly leaders, they will want you to attach to them. And they will draw you not towards Christ, but they will draw you towards themselves. They may even start with great motives and great purposes and great ideas, right? They may really genuinely be looked at, but as the power and the prestige and the authority comes to them, they will naturally drift away from that and drift towards, and naturally drift away from pointing you towards Christ and start pointing you towards themselves. 
And so a believer, right, has to be discerning of the person in authority over them, but it's important that the more adversity a church faces, the more important church leadership becomes. Because the leadership serves to point the people first and foremost to Christ. You know, in, in thinking through this, there was a, a recent um, Facebook post, a tweet that, that really popped in my head of just how destructive bad leadership can be. Um, there was a pastor of a major evangelical church. This church is one of the largest churches in the nation. Um, I guarantee you've heard worship music by this, pa- this pastor's church. Um, very famous. Last week, this is what the pastor posted. He says, following Jesus doesn't change you. He says, God wants you to see you the way he does. Now, there was a lot of posts in response of quoting from 1 Corinthians where it says, we are a new creation, right? But what stuck out to me wasn't just how bad this person's teaching was. What stuck out to me was the number of likes and retweets and shares this had. And my, what was really concerning to me was here is somebody that many people probably look to as a great leader in the Christian faith. This was the evangelical church, Baptist church, right? And, and here, tons of people looking to him, tons of people following. And here this, this man was saying that something that was complete opposition to Scripture. Leadership matters all the time. But especially when the church and Christians are facing more and more persecution from the culture, what our leaders are pointing us to matters. And here's the scary part, and we're, and we're talking about this a little bit with point two, but the scary part is often false teaching sounds good. False teaching often sounds like scripture. In fact, it's amazing how often really good false teachers will quote scripture. When the devil's tempting Jesus, he quotes scripture. And so as Christians, right, good leadership matters because good leadership serves first and foremost as an example, but also as a buffer. And here's what's really cool about everything that that Peter talks about here. If you were to look at what Peter says the leaders are not supposed to be, that was everything that Romans expected their leaders to be. Romans expected their leaders to have a sense of duty about them. They did it not because it's what they wanted to do, but because of what was required of them. They expected their leaders not to do the the day-to-day stuff, not to do the servant's job. They expected their leaders to be prideful and arrogant and to to be out front, right? The, the, The manly men leading the charge. And Peter talks about leaders that are completely different. And here's a principle that, that was true then and true now. How the world describes a leader is often in complete contrast to the biblical example of what a leader is. And in, in our churches, we often look for leaders that meet the world's standard of leadership. Is this, a, is this person a good businessman? Is this person a good CEO? Is this person a good, um, you know, speaker? Is this person a good so-and-so? Instead of looking at what does the Bible say a good leader is, and that's who should lead us. And what Peter is, is, is subtly telling the people by commanding and talking to these elders is that the people should look for leaders that don't meet the world's expectation of leaders, but meet leaders who meet the Bible standards for leaders. Right, and, and he's going to point to that we have no farther to look than Christ. By every metric of the world's standards, Christ failed. Right? He dies on the cross with no one following him. Right? His mother weeping at his feet. His disciples have rejected him. 
right? Even once he resurrects, we're talking maybe when he ascends 400 people, right? He turns away the crowds. He, he, he speaks harsh truths, right? His leadership strategy makes no sense to the world, but the reality is he led exactly as he needed to because he served exactly as the Father had commanded him to serve. And so when faced with challenges, the first part of correct interaction is correct biblical leadership. But the second part of correct interaction is correct submission. You see, there's a subtle undertone here of what Peter is saying. If there are people that are to lead the church well, then there must also be people who are willing to be led. If you look at verse 5, Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Now, there's something we need to, to understand here about the language that can be a little confusing. In, verse, in chapter 1, the word elders is, is basically what we would call pastors or overseers. In verse 5, it sure seems like the way he's using elders is age-related, right? Senior adults, old people, right? Because he says younger, but in reality, that's not actually what he's meaning. That, that doesn't make sense in the context of what he's saying. He's using elder and younger to talk about the elders are people who are mature in their faith, which he expects the elders of the church to be some of the most mature believers. And so in this way, he's using younger to, to demonstrate not just people who are age-wise younger, but also people who are younger, less mature in their walk. And so what he's saying is, is that the people in the church, in the local community, who are less mature should default and should submit to the more mature believers among them. Right? And so many of the principles that we saw when we talked about submission to government still apply here. Right? The idea being he's not saying submit to them if they directly disobey the commands of God. Obviously not. Right? The commands of God come first. But in ma- matters of wisdom, in matters of preference, in matters of discernment, submit to those that are, that are over you, in authority over you. Just like the command was in chapters 2 and 3 with government, with masters, and in the household. And so you see right, the same principle applies here. In fact, he tells them to clothe themselves in all humility. You see, I think one of the challenges we have in modern churches is not just that we don't have good leaders, but it's also that we don't like to be led. And we make it tough and challenging on our leaders. And if you look at the characteristics described here in, in, first, in first Peter chapter 5, You get men that care deeply about the people around them. And so when those people stab them in the back, when those people undermine them, when those people refuse to be led, they take it very personally. And so the danger here is that the very men who Peter is saying we should be led by are the men who our willingness not to be led causes the most pain to. And so when we refuse to be led, right, We cause them to get burnt out. We cause them to get disillusioned. We cause them to lose all of the characteristics Peter says they're supposed to have. Right? We've all had kids that just don't want to obey. Right? You're in line at Walmart, and they decide now's the time to throw a fit. Right? And when that's happening, the thought process in your head is not, I am doing my duty as a parent willfully right now. Right? Like, that's, that's not... What's in your head? You're probably thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill this kid, right? Like, that's what you're thinking in your head, right? And it's not a perfect analogy. Don't take it too far. But as a church, we're often the kid in the aisle screaming. 
and, and we put our leaders in positions to where they're half to doing what they don't want to do. We're forcing them, instead of willingly serving, to feel under the compulsion of God to serve. Right? Nobody wants to serve alongside people where all they do is complain. Right? That's not fun for anybody. And so by complaining constantly, by constantly tearing people down, we cause the people who are lead us not to want to serve among us, but to distance themselves from us. Right? When we don't follow, right, we have, there are great godly pastors who set great role models for us, but when we reject their role models and follow people who are setting bad role models for us, we make them become disillusioned and not want to live out what they preach. And so listen, the responsibility for good leadership does rest on the leader, but the responsibility for good leadership also rests on the church to submit to it. And that's not easy, And that means sometimes we'll have to give up our preferences, and sometimes we'll have to give up what we want and do instead what they want. And sometimes they'll make decisions that are wrong. They'll make decisions that are unwise, and and God will show that to them, right? But that doesn't mean we have to be the way God shows that to them. And so we have to submit. And ultimately, right, the the way that Peter says that we as believers must interact correctly, whether we're the elders, whether we're the people in charge who have authority, or people who are not— is we must all act with humility towards each other. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The defining characteristic of Christians' interaction with other Christians should be humility. And and here's why. Because we realize that the truth is that we are all sinners. I'm no better, I'm no wiser, I'm no stronger, I'm no gooder, that's a word, it's probably not, than you. And you are no better, no wiser, no more righteous than I. Because the fact is, apart from Christ, we are not righteous, and with Christ, we are clothed in righteousness that never ends. And so Christians, we have humility towards each other because we understand that no matter what the other person's faults are, no matter what their annoying habits are, we have the same thing. And so we deal in humility towards each other because we understand the reality of who we are apart from Christ and who we are in Christ. And so you see, right, how how the covenant we have with God grounds our relationships with each other. And so we interact, we default to one another, right? As Paul will say, we look not only for our own interests, but to the interest of others, And so the defining characteristic should be humility. And again, right, I think it's really easy to have humility with people you know. It's really easy to have humility with somebody that knows you really well, that knows all your faults, that knows all your shortcomings. It's a lot harder to have humility with somebody you don't know. Or to put it another way, it's easy to give grace when you know somebody's motives. Right? If you know somebody generally is trying to do what's right and do what's good, if you don't understand their behavior, you give them grace. Right? You, say, you say, okay, well, they're probably just trying to do what's right. They're trying to do what's good. It's a lot harder to do that with somebody you don't know. And so there's two principles from that. First of all, we should get to know each other because it makes it easier to be humble towards each other and give grace towards each other. But second is that the reality is it's almost impossible for all of us in the church to know each other extremely well. There's just too many of us for that, right? And that's okay. That's not a bad thing, right? But what that does mean is we have to give grace even when we don't know somebody and we don't know their motives, right? The the idea is this. As Christians, 
and humility towards each other, we assume that other Christians are always trying to do the right thing. Right? And even if what they're appearing is wrong, we, we try to understand how they're doing good in that, and we give them grace in it. Right? And sometimes that grace means pointing out where behavior is sinful. Right? But sometimes that grace means just be sitting silently. And there's a fine line, there's a hard line to walk there. And so we give humility back to it when people are trying to walk that line. But we see how the guiding principle to everything we do is humility. And so the first thing is that as a covenant community, we must interact correctly. But the second thing is, Peter says that as a covenant community, as the flock of God, we must encourage each other. Why? Why does Peter say that we must encourage each other? Because, chapter 5, verse 8, we are under attack. Right? The reality is, the nature of our attack is spiritual. Believers face a spiritual battle which will manifest itself in physical realities. We face an adversary who is the devil, who seeks to attack, to destroy. And listen, he isn't attacking unbelievers. They're lost and on their way to destruction. He wants to attack the church, to diminish the, the, the joy of a believer, to diminish the witness of the church. And so he seeks to cause tensions and divisions and fractures among the church. He seeks to break the humility and the unity that we saw in the first part of chapter 5. And so because we are under attack, he wants us to be sober and watchful. And being sober and watchful, right, what is, what's the purpose of a watchman? A watchman stands watch for other people, right? You put a person on a watchtower so they can warn other people about the danger, right? Part of the purpose, this is actually the second time Peter has told them, right, be sober, be watchful. But in this context, the the being sober-minded, being watchful, isn't necessarily an internal command, it's an external one. The idea being that we are to be sober-minded, that we are to think straight, that we are to reason, right, and we are to watch the world around us and the believers around us for their benefit because they are under attack also, right? When, when When somebody stands guard around the base, they are doing that to protect everyone else in the base, right? Their cries of alarm don't just protect them, right? They protect everyone else who could not stand alarm at that moment. And so as believers, right, we we are sober-minded and watchful because it encourages each other, and we point out the dangers to each other. But then there's something even more. Look at verse 9. He says, resist him, him being the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, Christians encourage each other when together. We watch out for each other. We encourage each other that we're facing similar trials. But here's something really interesting. Even when we are apart, our sufferings encourage one another. Right? What Peter says, Peter says, listen, I understand that you guys are suffering And he's acknowledged the truth and the reality of their suffering. But he wants them to know that other believers around the world are suffering the same thing. And so they can be strong. They can endure their sufferings. They can be faithful to Christ in those sufferings because other believers are as well. And here's the reality. Your faithfulness is not for you. Your attendance is not for you. Your service is not for you. Your faithfulness and your service and your attendance seeks to strengthen the faith of other believers. And so God has called us to be a part of a 
covenant that is communal, that is a community, so that we can encourage other people's faith in the covenant. We are called to be a part of a local church, not for ourselves. I explained it this way to, to some of the students one time. We were talking, we were doing a summer Bible study with the boys, and we were walking through um, a book about godly disciplines, and we talked about going to church. And I asked them why they went to church. And some of them were truthful and said, my parents make me. And some of them said, I, I go to church to grow closer to God. And I said, that's awesome, but that's a bad reason to go to church. Which, of course, got their attention like the heads I just saw pop up right now. And I said, here's why. Because if you go to church to grow closer to God, you'll find a better worship experience online. If you grow, go to church to grow closer to God because you hear great preaching, you can find a better preacher online. Right? You can find everything that you want. If it's growing, you can find better Bible studies online. You can find a better Sunday school teacher online. You can, go, you can always find something better. But the reality is what you cannot do apart from the local church, is live out a life of faith that other Christians can see. And you cannot be encouraged by other Christians, and you cannot serve other Christians. And the reality is, God has called us to be a part of a covenant that is communal. And so we live out the covenant, not just in relation to unbelievers, but in relation to other believers. You cannot be a faithful Christian apart from the local church. And the local churches serve to encourage one another. Right? When we saw um, a couple weeks ago the, the, the report of Christians in Venezuela being faithful to God, serving one another, being baptized, that was an encouragement to me to be more bold in my faith in America where I have it a lot easier than they do. Right? And when we send them support, they are encouraged by knowing that they are not alone in their struggles, that there are Christians praying for them and caring for them and supporting them. So first and foremost, we express our encouragement in the local church, but then we as local churches encourage other local churches. And so as a community, we must encourage each other. And then in conclusion, Paul says that the flock of God must focus on God. And now that sounds kind of redundant. Right? How can the flock of God do anything else but focus on God? Right? But the reality is, in trials and temptations and persecutions, the flock of God will seek to focus on anything else but him. In verse 7, he says, cast your anxieties on him. Listen, he understood that what these people were going through was difficult. It was challenging. It would cause them distress. And he understood that those stresses, those anxieties, could cause them to be distracted from what Christ has done for them. And so they were to cast their anxieties upon God. And they were to wait, in verses 10 and 11, for him to complete the work that he has begun. You see, we, we, we sing that it is finished. We say that, that it is finished when Christ died on the cross, and it was. The work had been completed. But it also is not completed. You say, well, that sounds like a contradiction. It's not. Now, but not yet. You see, right now, you are saved. If you are in Christ, your eternal security is secure. You are saved. But you are still living. You have not died. And so the promise of what is to come has not yet been fulfilled. And what Peter is saying here is the church focuses on what has been accomplished and looks forward to what will be accomplished. The church looks at what Christ has done and sees his resurrection and saying, there's a day coming where that will be me. There's a day coming 
when, as Christ died and rose again, I will die and rise again. There's a day coming where my hopes, instead of being something that I have not seen, will be secure in what I have seen. And there's a day coming where we, as a covenant community, will no longer worship apart from Christ, but we will worship in the very presence of Christ. And we will join not just with our local church, but with every believer that has ever existed and rejoice that what God has promised, he's brought to fruition. And so the believers, the church, the church is necessary for the believers to focus on Christ. And so part of what the church is, the only thing the church does, is point people to Christ. And think about what this church was going through. Think about the persecutions, everything that was going on. Listen, I'm sure they wanted to talk about how they got their businesses back in order, how they got their farms taken care of. I'm sure they wanted to talk about how they politically got their citizenship back or how they figured out all the political problems in the land they were at. But what Peter tells them they need to focus on was not their social problems, was not political solutions. What they needed to focus on was Christ. When they gathered together, Christ was the center. And then everything else fell in order from there. And so as a church, we must constantly be reminding ourselves, both individually and corporately, to focus on God. Because as scriptures show us elsewhere, we will seek to focus on everything else. And so the application this morning is going to be a little bit different. The application this morning is going to be the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take communion together this morning. But first, I need to offer an invitation. And so, as Lisa comes and we, and we have a hymn of invitation, here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to honestly reflect as you sit there. Maybe you realize that you have not repented of your sins and trust in Christ, that you are not a part of covenant with Christ and a covenant community. Maybe you realize as you sit there that you are not saved from the wrath of God because you have not trusted in Christ for salvation then I would encourage you to respond by doing that right now. Or maybe you realize that you have withdrawn from community. Maybe you realize that you are not a part of a covenant community, a community that belongs to Christ, that's focused on God. And so I would ask you, come join us today. Or maybe you're, you are both those things. You are a believer in Christ, a part of this community, and you would seek simply to repent, to turn again to Christ. I would encourage you to do that during this invitation, during this hymn, of response. And then we will move into the time of the Lord's Supper. Let us sing together.